Well, good morning, Redeemer. It's uh, so good to be with you. Um, but before we, uh, before we dive into God's Word, let's just, let's just take a moment, pause, pause um, in prayer, uh, quiet our hearts before, before God. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name, the only name that saves, and that is Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we fully acknowledge that all our trust is in His righteousness this morning. That's how we can come to You, the holy, transcendent, mighty, and glorious God. We ask now, Holy Spirit, that You would humble us. Make us to see our lowest state before You. Right now, till the soil of our hearts and prepare us to hear from Your holy Word. And, O oh Lord, You know the weeks that we've had. You know whether we are coming joyful. You know whether we are coming melancholic. You know whether we are coming burdened and heavy laden, God. But no matter what, we believe that Your Word speaks. We believe that Your Word transforms. And we believe, Lord, that the most important thing that we could do is sit under Your holy Word. So Holy Spirit, help us, move in us to the end that we would be changed more and more into the likeness of Christ for your glory, God, and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Redeemer, it is so good to be with you, and uh, I just love those testimonies of the children. I, I just, I, that, that just melts me. Doesn't it melt you? Isn't that just amazing? That's amazing. And uh, it's, it's amazing, too, because I had a note. I talked to Pastor Levi before the service about just something I had in my manuscript, and I was just overjoyed, you know, the songs that we were singing, and then from the, the mouths of babes, we hear the clear, articulate, glorious gospel. Isn't that amazing? Right? Piper, I guess, what is she, seven or eight? Eight. She can articulate it more clearly than some of us today. It's, it's just amazing. Praise God. Well, this morning I would ask you to open up your Bibles with me to Acts 4, uh, verse 32. Acts 4, 32. Now, as you're finding that in your Bibles, I want to ask this simple question. How many of you have ever been part of a big shakeup in a company that you worked for? Yeah, there's lots of hands. Maybe the company was bought out by a bigger one. Maybe there was a desire to streamline some areas of inefficiency or weakness. There was threats of restructure, downsizing, and the potential for many lost jobs. Right? Those are the moments when we begin to question what the future holds. Those are the moments when we begin to give in to fear, to give in to worry. What do I do next? Will I lose my job? How am I going to provide for my family? Should I start looking now for another job? Right? That's what happens to us when the ground beneath us starts to shake. And the early church, with stakes infinitely higher than a failing company or a lost job, found themselves wondering, what is going to happen next? What are we going to do? You see, the early church, right, they had seen the events of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended and empowered the people of God to proclaim the Gospels in languages they didn't even know, right? And, and they had seen as Peter preached this amazing sermon and over 3,000 people turned to the Lord. They, they saw as, as people who had been ailed by, by weakness, by sickness, being miraculously healed. But, but then something happened. They got their first taste 
of persecution. Peter and John were called before the Jewish leaders, right? They were threatened. They said, if you keep preaching Jesus, you're going to end up like him, dead. That happened. Those were real threats. Now, how does the church, what does she do after that? What does she do on the other side of threats like that? How does she move forward? Does her approach change? Well, we see in our text today that the early church did nothing to change their approach. Absolutely nothing. They stayed the course and continued to do what their great Savior commanded them to do. Were there potential risks ahead? Of course. Were there unknowns? Of course. But the church knew ultimately that Jesus Christ was sovereign. He was the sovereign leader, commander of the church. So they knew that he would accomplish all that he wanted to through them. So amidst the unrest, amidst the chaos, amidst the fear and worry, there was tremendous hope as the church demonstrated a love and a unity that should be sought after by every generation of God's people. And friends, in our text this morning, we're going to see a snapshot of the early church persevering and thriving as they continued on their mission. Now with these things in mind, here now, from the holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active Word of God to us today. Acts 4, verse 32 to 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, you would have noticed that Pastor Levi walked uh, us through Acts 2, verse 42 to 47. And in that text, really, Luke was painting a picture. He He was showing us the health and the vitality of the early church, right? Luke will put these mini snapshots throughout the book of Acts as the church moves through her mission. And here in our text this morning, the church is still in stage one. They're still in Jerusalem. And Luke's main purpose in our text today is to show us the tremendous unity and love that the church had for one another. Simply put, we see the church functioning as a big family. Matthew Henry, a famous Bible commentator, he put it this way. There's nothing up there, so I'll read nice and clear. We have a general idea given us in these verses, and it is a very beautiful one, of the spirit and state of this truly primitive church, a view of that age of infancy and innocence. Infancy and innocence. Now, I want you to hear that correctly, because sometimes when we hear those words, we're quick to dismiss. But there is no reason why we should assume that Luke is painting a picture of a dumb or a naive church Instead, we see a church that is to be held in high regard. 
A church that is to be imitated. A church that is demonstrating what it is to be the family of God. Now, every family is going to be marked by certain characteristics. The Scarlet family, for example, you can ask Krista. We love Lord of the Rings. So if you come over for dinner, you are going to hear way too many Lord of the Rings quotes. Way too many. Ask Krista. I think she's seen the movies one time through, maybe. I have not subjected her to watch them all over again like I have. We love our movies. And also you're going to hear our family just poking each other because we love to just, we love making fun of each other in love. Those are some of the characteristics that make up the Scarlet family. Well, so it is with the family of God. The church is called to be distinct, distinct from the world, to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth, and to be the aroma of Christ to a sad and dying world. That means that we're going to look, we're going to taste, and we're going to smell different from the people that we rub shoulders with day in and day out. That's what we're seeing in our text. So, friends, let's consider some of these distinctive marks of the family of God. First, we see the family of God marked by authentic unity. Authentic unity is our first point. Look with me to verse 32 to see this. Luke says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. The early church was thriving because they were unified. They were one. One heart, one soul. Now you say, what does that mean, Matt? What does that mean? Well, it means they were singular in focus. They had one goal. They had one objective. That was to know Christ and to share Him with the world. That's what they were there to do. That was their mission. And they were pursuing it as one. G. Campbell Morgan, he puts it this way, they were moved by one great impulse. One love mastered them. They had one outlook, one inward consciousness, one inspirational motive. They were one. Now, I want to be clear. This is not something that we gloss over, right? Sometimes when we're reading our Bibles in the morning, we just gloss over things so quickly. But Luke is not saying simply that some of the church was unified. He wasn't saying that a part of the church was at one. He's saying the full number of believers. Look with me again to the text. He says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Friends, that means the whole gathered church. Now somebody yelled, how many people made up the church at this point? Roughly. Yeah, thousands. 5,000 plus. You have 5,000 plus people operating as one giant cohesive family. That's incredible, isn't it? We can't gloss over that. That that is incredible. Matthew Henry, he captures the beauty of this unity. He says this, Though they were many, very many, of different ages, tempers, and conditions in the world, who perhaps, before they believed, were perfect strangers to one another, yet when they met Christ, they were as intimately acquainted as if they had known one another many years. Perhaps they had been of different sects among the Jews before their conversion, or had had discords upon civil accounts, but now these were all forgotten and laid aside, and they were unanimous in the faith of Christ, and being all joined to the Lord, they were joined to one another in holy love. 
That's beautiful. What was making the church one, is so united? What was keeping them so united? It was the good, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what was keeping them one. They were one because all of them were putting their faith, their trust, solely in Christ Jesus. He was their rock. He was their cornerstone. He was their foundation. It was that that was holding them together. Paul would later say to the Ephesians, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Unity is something that is meant to be sought after and cherished, friends. The early church modeled it perfectly. They were one because they were one in Christ. Now, were there moments of of disagreements, right? Yes, of course. We're going to see that as we walk through Acts. Of course. In fact, the early church, right, they're going to have their own questions, their own disagreements. That's true. And we as a church, just a a church made up of 60, 70, 80 adults, we're going to have our disagreements too. But if we agree and hold on to the most important thing, that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus Christ, then we're going to make it. We're going to make it. Because that's what the early church was doing too. That's what was keeping them thriving as one cohesive, amazing family. A.W. Tozer, he had this beautiful illustration to capture this. He says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which one, each one must individually bow. You see where he's going, right? So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. You know, if Christ is the center, right? I just want to be clear here. It's not about let's just pursue unity for the sake of it. No, that's not what's going on here. Luke is describing what has happened. He's saying these brothers and sisters had their eyes locked on Christ. And that was keeping them one. That was the formula. If we keep our eyes fixed on His glory, His gospel paramount, friends, then we're going to see the same thing here. Or is that just wishful thinking? No, that's straight from the Word of God. And that is why, as Pastor Levi mentioned a few weeks back, we have to resist the urge to try and recreate the churches that we grew up in, that we were so fond of. Because right here in this gathering, there's a hundred different old churches represented here. But if we stop looking back, stop trying to create what we did in the past, and we continue to look forward to Christ, then we, will, we can trust that He will keep us on the straight and narrow road. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Him, on the Gospel. Keep first things first. Because friends, over the past few years, haven't we seen what happens when we get off the main road? When we make things that shouldn't be first... First, right? As Pastor Paul would say, we put things that should be in the trunk, right in the front seat. Right? There's so many people over the last few years, brothers and sisters, who now walk as almost enemies because they decided to die on hills that were never meant to be battlefields. 
It's, it's a good time to ask ourselves, do we long and desire to be one? Do we long and desire for peace in our midst, in the churches around us? Do we pray for this to happen? Are we quicker to point out the areas we disagree rather than the areas we do agree? Oh Lord, forgive us for our proneness to divide rather than to move towards unity. Friends, the text before us both challenges us, right? It challenges us to strive to be at one, but it also provides the hope. It provides the hope that we, being filled with the Holy Spirit, if we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, we can walk as one, just as the early church did. And secondly, friends, we see the family of God being marked by powerful proclamation. Powerful proclamation. The early church was walking together as one, and they had one message to declare, the good news of Jesus Christ. And as we saw, it was this that was keeping them one. It was this that was holding them together. But friends, the church didn't stop. They didn't say, we've got enough people in the church, we're going to stop proclaiming Him. No, instead, they continued to do it boldly. Look with me to verse 33 to see this. Luke says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The early church was characterized by bold preaching and powerful lives. It was marked by power. This was a group proclaiming Jesus their Savior with courage, with might as they were filled and being fueled by the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who had, who had empowered them at Pentecost was empowering them now with boldness and courage. Bold, courageous, clear, and articulate gospel preaching and changed lives were characterizing this group. Spiritually dead people were coming alive in their midst. Men and women who were suffering with ailments for years were being healed. As the church proclaimed their risen Savior, so dead sinners were coming to life. Hallelujah. And friends, remember, this was all on the heels of Peter and John being dragged before the Jewish leaders. Right? This was right after they faced real adversity. The church was not deterred, though. The church kept moving forward. The church was bold. Why? Because God had answered the prayer that they prayed before. Last week, Pastor Levi walked us through this text. This is how the church prayed after their persecution. In Acts 4.29, they said this, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You see, God had answered their prayer. That's why they were moving forward with boldness. They weren't mustering up this courage on their own. No, this was Holy Spirit-empowered boldness. He empowered them to continue their mission despite the fact that there were threats and further persecution coming their way. Now, if we're honest, let's just be honest here. Wouldn't you agree that this would have been the time for the church to say, you know what, why don't we just lay low? We've got 5,000 plus people here. That's a good start, right? 
Let's just, just, let's just leave the gospel, let's leave the powerful proclamation for a little bit. Let's preach the gospel if necessary, use words, right? Let that be our mantra. No. The church said, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. This is our hope. How could we be quiet? How could we be quiet? So instead, the church, emboldened, empowered by the Spirit, kept first things first and continued to powerfully proclaim Jesus. Again, uh, we, have to, we have to stress here, the church was not naive. The church was not naive. They knew what was coming. Jesus died on the cross. Their Savior, their Lord, died on a cross. And Jesus Himself told His people, don't come to Me before counting the cost. Right? He said, this is not going to be easy. You better count the cost before. The early church knew what they were getting into. They had counted the cost and they found that Jesus, their Savior, was supremely worth the cost. He was worth facing all the threats. He was worth it. Because Jesus Christ, friends, is the only way that can be saved. The only way we can be saved. It's the only message. Allah is not going to save you. Hinduism is not going to save you. Buddhism is not going to save you. Nothing but Christ will save. He's the only way your spouse is going to be saved. Your, your children, your neighbors, your co-workers. The church believed that, friends. And because of that, they continued in unity to powerfully proclaim that Jesus was alive and that He saves Friends, have you felt the temptation to, to tamp down your gospel conversations? Have we as a church felt that it would just be easier to just blunt the edges a little bit, right? Water down the gospel. I mean, how many of us, if we're honest, sometimes we wish, couldn't we just function as a charity? Nobody would despise us if we were just giving things away. Nobody would oppose us if that's what we were doing. But charity doesn't save sinners. No. Jesus does. Therefore, friends, like the early church, let's resolve to continue to preach the Word with all boldness in the face of adversity. And thirdly, we see the family of God characterized by abounding generosity. Abounding generosity. Now, families are supposed to take care of each other. Right Through the thick and the thin, they're supposed to be there. When trials come, they're supposed to be the ones who back us up. And friends, this is exactly what was going on in the early church, in the family of God. Look with me to verse 32, and then we're going to get verse 34 to 35 to see this. Luke says this, Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And in verse 34 to 35, he continued, There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. See, the unity that the believers had through the gospel of Jesus Christ was, being, was translated into them sharing their goods and possessions. As a family, right, they saw that it was incumbent upon themselves to take care of one another. 
They saw the chance to serve one another, and they said, yes, let's do it. With famine, political unrest, limited employment opportunities, the church saw many opportunities to to do this. So as the needs came up, the church stepped up. It reminds me of Galatians 6-10. to There Paul says this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's what the church was doing. They were characterized by abounding generosity because they saw it as their mandate to take care of one another. And the church, the early church, forgive me, just like us today, was full of needy people. Right? We're a needy people, are we not? Right? We're not exempt from job losses, from failing health, broken appliances, broken vehicles, you name it, right? And here in the snapshot, there's just this beautiful picture of the church, right? Of, of those who had resources to spare. Instead of them hoarding them, keeping them, instead of them doing that, they were selling them in order to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters. And the funds would be handed over to the leaders of the church and they would distribute them where the needs were. Look with me to verse 34 to 35 again. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. You know, it's as though, it's as though the, the more well-off people, you know, the people had, who had extra, extra change in their pocketbook, had their heads on swivels. And they were just looking around to see, is there anybody who is needy that I can help out? I've got an abundance. Is there anybody who could, who, who, who could be helped by my abundance? Isn't that incredible? And, and this wasn't just a one-off here. That's what's incredible as well. It wasn't just one person. This see, but it appears that this was actually a pattern of those who had wealth in the early church. God was transforming hearts, and it was evidenced by pocketbooks being emptied in order to serve the people of God. Generosity was abounding because God's grace was abounding. And then Luke proceeds to highlight a specific act of generosity done by Barnabas. In in verses 36 to 37, he says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. See, Barnabas, we're going to come across him more as we continue on in Acts, exemplified this spirit of generosity along with countless others that we never hear of. The church was taking their mandate to love one another and care for one another seriously, just as Jesus taught us. He said this, By this all people will know that you are my, that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The snapshot that Luke shows us here is the compelling, loving, and unified family of God. Does it seem too good to be true? You can be honest. Don't put your hand up. But let's just be honest. It almost appears to be too good to be true, doesn't it? Well, again, friends, if it was up to us, left to our own devices, yeah, it would be too good to be true. It would. One commentator puts it this way. We must have Pentecost before we can have the condition of affairs described here. 
That's the key, isn't it? We must have Pentecost before. We can't do this alone. We can't muster up the strength to do this, no. But we're not alone, are we? Because the same Holy Spirit who was empowering the early church is empowering us here today. The same Holy Spirit is empowering Redeemer City. Empowering you and I. Therefore, as we see the early church walking in unity, powerfully proclaiming the Gospel and taking care of one another, we must imitate them. We must imitate them. For the good, for, forgive me, for our good, right? for the good of the watching world and to the glory of our great God and Father Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Now that's the text, but I can imagine many of you have, have little bunny trails going on in your head. You've got questions, right? You're saying, yeah, Matt, that's, that's great. In theory, right? But the world is rarely black and white, right? I'm sure some of you are thinking that. Well, you're right. Generosity is complicated in a fallen world. So with the time we have left, let's think carefully about generosity in a fallen world. The first thing we should say is this. Generosity should not enable sin. Generosity should not enable sin. And in the text before us, the generosity shown was, was there and given to meet legitimate need. It wasn't enabling laziness. It wasn't enabling sloth. It wasn't enabling sin. And because of that, when we're talking about generosity, we need to fence it with two important qualifiers. The first is this, that the early church did in fact have individual possessions. They, they had their own stuff. They were not living in a big commune. And they did not sell everything and give it away. Many of them, they, they had their own possessions. Many of the early church, they were wealthy. I. Howard Marshall sums it up this way. This way of putting the matter brings out the fact that the things which each person possessed evidently continued to be his own property until, until it was found necessary to sell them for the common good. This was not communism. And secondly, people had jobs and were working hard. That's so important. The church was not the place to go to gather around if you didn't want to work. No, that's not the case at all. It wasn't the place where possessions and goods were being gathered so that people could sleep in and mooch off somebody else. Not at all. A few, decade, a few decades after this, Paul would write to the Thessalonians. He'd say this, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. This is true. It was true in the first, the early days of the church and it's true for us today. The, the scriptures never commend sloth and laziness. Those who can work should work. So generosity in a fallen world means encouraging people to steward the gifts and the resources and the talents that they've been given, whether they're many or whether they're few. Friends, we should, can't we just say here, we need wisdom, don't we? We need wisdom. 
Because we don't ever want our, our generosity to perpetuate laziness, sloth. We don't want the world to look and say, look at the Christians. They're just gathering people who are standing around doing nothing. Our generosity should always be aiming for reform and health in the ones that we're seeking to help. So friends, maybe, maybe wise, godly, spirit-empowered, spirit-filled generosity looks like you helping a brother or sister repair a car that they can't afford to take to a mechanic. Giving up your Saturday to do that, that's generosity. Somebody like me who's not handy, has benefited from his father-in-law helping him out a lot with this car, that is huge. Maybe that's something that you do. Or maybe it's offering a ride to a brother or sister who doesn't have a vehicle, who can't pay for transportation, who needs to get groceries, or or doesn't have a way to come to church. Maybe it's you preparing a few meals for a family that's in crisis. Or maybe it's you helping somebody find a job. Or just maybe, maybe it's you, just like Barnabas, having something of great value, selling it, bringing those proceeds to the church and saying, help, use this to help those who need it. Friends, the point is not how. How our generosity is manifested. The point is if we're manifesting it. And the point of this text is to tell us, you've got to do that. You're supposed to be a generous people. And yes, friends, it's going to get messy at times. Lines are going to be blurred as we dole out generosity. Mistakes are going to happen. People are going to get hurt. People are going to take advantage at times. So we're going to need to pray bold, Holy Spirit, bold prayers, asking for the wisdom from God so that we can do this well. And secondly, generosity in a fallen world, what can we say about it? Well, generosity should not be compulsory. Generosity should not be compulsory. You see, the early church wasn't exhibiting this generosity because they had guns to their heads. right? They weren't being coerced into it. No, that, that is not at all the case. I think if you're, a, if you're a young person like myself, early 30s or younger, lots of us question authority. And we come to a text like this and we say, there's no possible way that the early church was doing this of their own volition. I know there's people looking at the text saying that, but the text is plain. God's Word is clear. People were doing this because they wanted to give. They weren't under compulsion. They were giving because they desired to see God's kingdom come. They were giving freely because they wanted to. As Pastor Levi alluded to last Sunday, in 2 Corinthians Uh, one of the reasons that Paul wrote the letter was to encourage the church to help out in the Jerusalem offering. You see, the the church in Jerusalem was going through a famine. So so Paul was trying to gather funds so that that churches around the areas, around the world, could support these these churches in Jerusalem. Paul shared with the Corinthians how the churches of Macedonia, who themselves were in need, begged to take part in this offering. In 2 Corinthians 8, we we read this. They, that is the the Macedonians, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us 
earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Isn't that incredible? Poor Christians helping other poor Christians. You know, the early church wasn't, they weren't being coerced into this generosity. On the contrary, they couldn't stop them from giving. Why? Because the early church believed these words. The point in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says this. The point is this whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will, will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. The early church believed that. That God loves a cheerful giver. God doesn't want to have to, to pry things from our fingers. No. 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 So what does generosity look like in a fallen world? It looks like Christians having received the greatest gift that they know they didn't deserve, eagerly giving up their wealth in order to further the kingdom of their great God. And this leads us to our last point. In our fallen world, generosity should be motivated by the gospel. Generosity should be motivated by the gospel. Now, um, one of the things I talked to Pastor Levi about before the service was, you know, should I put like a clear, I need a clear gospel presentation in, in, my, in, in the sermon. I need to make it really clear. It's funny because we're singing these songs this morning and then little Piper comes up and I'm like, it's right there. She said it way better than I could. Right? But simply put, right, the, the gospel is the news that, that, that Jesus Christ did what we could never do on our own. Since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden in paradise, chose to go their own way, every man and woman who have been born since have been born in sin. Nobody has lived up to the standard of the holy, sovereign, good, righteous Creator God. No one. Until Christ. Until Christ came. Right From His first breath, he, he, he was righteous, perfectly righteous. Picture, just think about it. There wasn't a moment in Christ's life where His affections weren't aimed and surrounded and rooted in, in His Father, in His Father's will. There wasn't a moment of His life when He walked in sin. There wasn't a moment when He didn't love the people around Him, even His enemies He loved. And then He, he went to the cross. And to be, to be nailed to a cross, the Jews all knew what that meant. That mean to be, meant to be cursed of God. Jesus was cursed, though He had d- done no wrong of His own, so that people like us could be brought into the family of God. That's the message of the Gospel. That's the message of the Gospel. That if you look away from yourself, right? Well, first you look at yourself and you say, I've got nothing that I could bring to God. There's nothing but even my good works are stained. But, but, but Jesus is sufficient. He's sufficient. It's when we look to Him in faith, we put all our hope in Him. It's when we do that that, that, that we can stand before the God our Father with our sins cast as far as the east is from the, the west, having Christ's works, good works, righteousness, all credited to us. Friend, friends, that is the Gospel. And let me say, that is what must motivate our generosity. 
That's what should motivate us. These believers in the early church, they were giving up their wealth and possessions because they had been transformed from the inside out. They had been changed. Their worlds had been turned upside down. They now saw their possessions not as their own, but as God's. And since they were God's, they were God's to give out. And this meant now that their riches, they weren't to be used for for big, faster, better cars, bigger houses, boats. No, they were meant for furthering the glory of their God. Just as Jesus taught them in Matthew 6. Jesus told us this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. The early church remembered those words and they were acting in obedience. That's what was fueling this generosity. And friends, that's the kind of generosity that the gospel produces. It transforms us from the inside out. It turns our earthly affections into affections that are for another world. For the kingdom of God and not our own. Because when we've seen how Christ, though He was rich, became poor, left His glory so that we could share in His, how could we not lay our treasures at His feet? How could we not trade our earthly passing goods knowing that we were trading them for eternal treasures? Lord, help us. Help us to see things as You do. Friends, as we come to a close here, the early church, they modeled what it was to be the family of God, didn't they? They strove for unity by keeping their gaze, their eyes fixed on their Savior. They preached Him boldly in adversity, and they cared for one another another as families should. And I just have to ask, do we want the Gospel to go forth in power like they did? Do we? Do we want our families and neighbors and our cities to proclaim that there is one God and there's one way to Him and that's through Jesus Christ? Do we desire to see our God receiving the worship of all peoples everywhere? If we do, friends, then let's look to God's Word and let's aim to imitate and emulate the early church that we see in this text. Let's stand on our our rock, our cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And it's to Him be the glory forever and ever. Forever and ever. Amen. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we confess that, Lord, this does seem too good to be true. God, we are finite. We feel our weakness every single day. But, Lord, we are not alone. We are not alone. You've given us Your Spirit. So now, Lord, we ask with humble hearts, transform us. Give us the faith to see, Lord, that it is possible to walk as the amazing, healthy, rich, united, bold, generous family of God as we are empowered by Your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that You would give us the grace to do what You command so that the watching world would look in and see us and say, we want that.
We want their joy. We want their unity. We want their hope so that you would receive the glory forever and ever. And Lord, we pray all these things in the saving name of Jesus Christ. Amen.